Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here together. Thank you. Thank you from the back row. We'll see if you're still awake in half an hour when we're... <laughs> it's good to be here together. Um, we've been working through the summer months in our series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Two books, but in the original they were really one book, so we often refer to them as one here. Um, and we've entitled this series, The New Exodus. During the series in the summer, we've been giving you the opportunity to text us your questions. So far, nobody that I know of has, take, has taken us up on that. Nobody's texted us any questions, hence you have not received any answers. But next Sunday will be our last uh, Sunday in this series. So if you still uh, have some burning questions about Ezra and Nehemiah, or perhaps something will come out of that uh, this morning, then please feel free to text us your questions. The number there, 844-650-1629, and, uh, and next week we'll, uh, we'll try to answer those if we, uh, if we receive any. So, When we think of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we generally uh, are drawn to the two big pieces, the two big events that take place in the books. So those of you who have been tracking with us, what would those two big events be? Building the wall, building the wall and temple. building the temple, right? So those are the two big things that, that uh, generally take place, and if you were to ask somebody who, who's read the books or knows anything about the books, that's what they would tell you the books generally are about. The people have been allowed to come back to Jerusalem, they've been back for a number of decades, and they uh, uh, have been tasked under Ezra to rebuild the temple, and then Nehemiah gets a burning uh, desire to jump in into the fray and wants to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But if you've been reading the books, you probably have realized that both those events actually take place and are completed by about halfway through their respective books. So what's in the other half of the books? Like, why bother? If those are the two big things, then, then why didn't they just end right there? You know, big celebration. Yes, we've rebuilt the temple. Yes, we've rebuilt the wall. And that's all these books are about. But there's a whole other half to these books. Well, once Ezra and Nehemiah complete their tasks, so the physical structures, they actually turn their attention to a third building project. They actually decide that there's something else that needs to be rebuilt. And that's the people of God. The temple's in place, the wall surrounding Jerusalem, and this scribe named Ezra and this godly man named Nehemiah decide, oh, there's other things that need attending to in terms of God's people. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, Rose uh, Hominick was uh, preaching here, if you were with us uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, and she talked about Ezra, who we're going to primarily focus on today, and his heart that was set towards God, his heart that was uh, set, and he made his purpose in learning about God through the Scriptures. He was a scribe, and a scribe's job was to simply transcribe the Scriptures. So take what you had in front of you and write it as accurately as humanly possible over here so that somebody else could get a copy. That was his job. He had no reason to do anything else but that. In, in, 
in order to accomplish his job, he didn't need to care about what it said. He just needed to know what the letters were, one after the other after the other, word after word after word, sentence after sentence. But Ezra, as Rose reminded us, wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied just transcribing the word so that somebody else could learn about it. Ezra wanted to know for himself what did the word say. And even more so, he wanted to be transformed by the word. He wanted his life to reflect everything that he was taking in as he was reading God's word. And then on top of that, Ezra wasn't satisfied. Ezra wanted God's people to absorb and to engage with the word. He wanted them to do more than just know how to physically rebuild a temple or rebuild a wall. He wants them to return spiritually, not just return physically to Jerusalem, but to return spiritually to God as well. He wants them to live out what it means to be a people set apart. So when King Artaxerxes decrees that Ezra should return to Jerusalem and teach the scriptures of the people, Ezra did most of the supervision of the rebuilding of the temple from afar, but his king finally says, no, you need to go back now, or you can go back now and teach the scriptures. We read in chapter 7 and 8 that Ezra begins to gather the leaders. Uh, he, he, he gets the uh, company of priests together and Levites and, quote, other sons of Israel, leaders. And one of the first things he learns about the Israelites is that many of the returnees, including some of the Israelite leaders, have intermarried with surrounding pagan nations which was against God's instruction to his people. So let's read in Ezra chapter 9, starting there, and we'll read through most of chapter 9. But let's start with the first couple of verses. When these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and said, Many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from other people living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, all surrounding nations. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race, which is Israel, has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage." Now today we, we look at that and we read that and we say, what's the big deal? So they married from one nation to another nation. Like, we do that all the time. We, we even celebrate intercultural marriages. So what's, but what's the big deal? But for Israel it was a big deal because God had said, I don't want you to do this. You're not allowed to be doing this. And if you were earlier um, with us in the series, even before Rose spoke, John Howe from Reality Church came into Vancouver, or came from Vancouver to our church, and he explained why this was a, like, why would God say this? Why would God say don't marry into other nations? And John reminded us that the Israelites were a chosen nation that were set apart as a nation for a reason. God had chosen this people, this nation, the Israelites, to be a beacon for the surrounding nations. 
Their primary task as God's people was to reflect, to shine out the holiness, the reality of who God was so that other nations would recognize this God. In a day uh, that was the, where the landscape was filled with the other nations worshiping a multitude of other pagan gods, people were so fixated on worshiping man-made deities, God's plan in the Old Testament was to reveal himself to these nations through a people, the Israelites. And so throughout the Old Testament, God's people are called, they're set apart to be that witness, reflecting, revealing the reality of the one true holy God to all the surrounding nations. Yahweh, the I Am, the one true God, is to be displayed through his people in an invitational, in an attractional way. There's a host of these other gods being worshipped in these other nations, and yet God's heart is not against those nations. It's not like he's saying they're horrible, detestable, their practices are, but God continues to pursue them. His heart is actually for these people in the other nations. His desire is that they come to him, worship him, be blessed by him. And so he wants the Israelites to be that magnet, that attractional people, to be other. How can you be attractional to somebody? How can you be drawing people to yourself if you're exactly like them? If you're exactly like me, I don't have a need for you. I'm already me. I don't need you to be me. And you don't need me to be you because you're you. It's when we're other that we become attractional. And so God has this people that he's called so they can be this holy reflection of his holiness that causes people to stop and say, oh, that's other than what I'm doing. That's other than who I am. And so to that end, one of the laws that God gives the Israelites is that they're to maintain their uniqueness, their purity, or their holy standing by not intermarrying with other nations. They're not supposed to take on the customs and the rituals and the lifestyle of those around them. He doesn't want them to make concessions and adopt the pagan practices of these other nations, which, let's be honest, it's a huge temptation when you marry into other belief systems. It's so hard to completely immerse yourself into another system and say, I will continue to be completely other. It will have no effect on me whatsoever. Now, you would think that after being exiled due to their sinful actions, it's the reason that they were sent away and why Jerusalem was conquered, the Israelites having returned to their homeland would be especially sensitive to this, especially diligent to following and obeying God. But Ezra shows up several decades later and discovers that not only the people who are to be set apart, but the leaders within the people, the leaders who are to be set apart within the set apart people, are also taking part in a sinful lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's destructive to them, and because it's destructive to them, it's detrimental to those around them. How can the Israelites be that witness if they're no different from those around him? They're compromising, as Pastor John Howe reminded us, they're compromising their mission in the world. So let's continue to read in Ezra chapter 9, verses 3 down to 15. So we know what the issue is. 
Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down utterly shocked. So this is a big deal. When's the last time you sat down, ripped your clothes, and not trying to imitate the Hulk, but you ripped your clothes and you pulled hair out of your head and off your beard because you were in such grief? Verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in, the, in mourning with my clothes torn, and I fell to my knees, and I lifted my hands to the Lord my God. And I prayed, Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We have killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. Notice that he's not talking about the specific sin yet. He's talking about their history as a people and their history as a people of sinners. But now, he says, we have been given a brief moment of grace. Like, even though we were this sinful nation, now you have sent us back and returned us to our land. For the Lord our God has allowed us a, a few of us to survive as a remnant. In other words, he didn't just wipe us out. He's given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery. For we were slaves, but in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He's given us a protective wall in, Jude, in Judah and Jerusalem. Those two rebuilding tasks are done. And now, our God, what can we say after all this? For once again, we have abandoned your commands. Your servants, the prophets, warned us when they said the land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their son. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and the prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces, and you will leave this prosperity to your children forever." But now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve for you, our God, have allowed us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we're, we are breaking your commands. We're intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? O oh Lord God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant, though in such a condition none of us can stand in your presence. That's a powerful, powerful prayer. And Ezra's response to what he's seeing going around him in the people of God is, an, is a model for us to follow when we confront sin. Notice that it started with him, me, as the individual. And then it moves to a us, corporate. 
So in verses 3 and 4, Ezra begins by grieving personally. And then he moves to a corporate. In 6 to 15, he confesses the sin to God, including himself as one who falls short of God's covenant standards. And then he recounts this cycle of sin and mercy and sin and mercy. And in chapter 10, we'll look at just quickly uh, in some of the verses in chapter 10, but later on, he calls the people to repent. He publicly calls them to change their ways. And then throughout that chapter, they put in a, a, a plan to ensure that the people were actually beginning to honor the Word of God and turning to God as their source of hope. It's a corporate cycle that takes place. Lament or, or grief, confession, repentance, and hope. Lament, confession, repentance, hope. It's something that is repeated throughout the scriptures. And Ezra keys in on this and he again brings it to the forefront again. This rhythm, this, um, this cycle that God's people go through. Verse uh, 1 in chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping, weeping and lying down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, a descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Because he knew the rhythm of the scriptures. He knew the rhythm that God had put in place for a sinful people. You lament. You grieve your wrongdoing. You confess it. You repent of it. And that leads into hope. Amen. And in chapter 10, Shechaniah and Ezra work together to formulate this detailed plan of repentance for the Israelites to follow. They go through that cycle of grief, lament. They confess to God, and they ask for direction on how to repent, how to turn away from what they've been doing and live according to, to God's law. Friends, we need to understand that the, act, the power of the act of repentance, because repentance takes something that has been accomplished in the spiritual realm already, and it enacts it, it engages it in our physical world by charting a new course living in a new way that's pointed back towards God, who's the source of hope. So that cycle, again, lament, confession, repentance, hope. You can't skip one before you get to the next one. And so the people of God reestablish their covenant with God, and in the following months, they slowly but surely reorient their lives. They reorient their practices in obedience toward God. And in doing so, they realize and they know from, God's, from the past and from their history that God is a God of mercy and hope and that he will restore them for mission and he will include them in his promises. So again, we're gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to hear it over and over and over. If you, if you leave with nothing, you know the four steps of this cycle, this rhythm. Because it's over and over in the scriptures. God pursues humanity. Humanity responds to that pursuit. And then humanity decides, no, I don't really need God. I'm, I'm good enough in who I am. I'm self-sufficient. And they turn away from God in sin. And God pours out judgment. He pours out judgment with a hope of restoring. And people go, oh my goodness. And they go through the process of lament and confession. And then they repent. And they're restored to hope. 
and they live that way for a certain amount of time, and then it's like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need God. And then they start the cycle all over again. Sin, lament, confession, repentance, hope. Anybody familiar with this cycle in your personal life? I sin, I grieve, I lament, I confess. I go before my God and I confess. And I work at repentance. And God restores me and he grants me a new sense of hope. It's a hard process in our personal lives, isn't it? It's not necessarily one that we really like to jump into in our personal lives. What about in our corporate life? Is there any space for this in our corporate life as a church? What does it look like to be connected as God's people? We came together today because we are God's people. What does it mean to be connected? You came because you wanted to be connected in worship. You wanted to be connected in the joy of some other people. You wanted to be lifted up. Maybe you came with burdens and you're hoping someone will pray for you. All those things. What does it mean to be connected as sinners? What does it mean to stand with each other in a place that I don't even like to go on my own? What does that look like for us? Even if I stand with you and the particular sin isn't my sin, what does that look like? Friends, Ezra wasn't involved. Ezra was not involved. He did not take a foreign spouse. He did not engage in this sin that is being talked about in this chapter. And yet the first person is him. And the first words coming out of his mouth is, I, God. He places himself in the presence of a nation, of other people, of God's people, and he begins with me. Why me? Why am I such a sinner? Why am I How am I, what am I involved in? He was the first person to lead the way in this cycle of lament, guilt, confession. He took ownership and included himself as part of God's people. We live in such an individualistic um, society. We live such individualistic lifestyles, including our ecclesial our church lifestyles. So we need to wrestle with this passage. It would have been great when we laid this out if we had just skipped this chapter because it doesn't have anything to do with us. Like, that's thousands of years ago. Who cares if the Israelites screwed it up? We've come a long way since them. And yet here it is for us. Are we courageous enough to be a people who's willing to enter into this cycle of sin, lament, confession, repentance, and hope? Do we even have a willingness? Like how many of you just tuned out when I started talking about this stuff, said, not for me today, buddy. Uh, I came in, I was happy. I had a good morning. The kids were on their P's and Q's. We got out of the door. We are going to the park afterwards. We're going to go have ice cream at the beach. Like, I don't need this today. 
Do we have space for this, friends? Is there a willingness to, to, to carve into, to delve into our corporate life? Maybe it starts with our understanding or vision of sin. When's the last time you thought about your, your vision of sin? Has it become so narrowly defined that it only, like I said, involves me and my God? Is that it? Is that where sin belongs? My daily thoughts? My daily actions? Because the reality in that is, like I'm just going to put it out there, I am a good guy. I don't know if you thought about that when you brought me on staff or, or asked me to be a pastor, but I am a darn good guy. Yeah. And I know some of you. Some of you are pretty good. Some of you are way better than me. Like, I don't have a super long list, guys. Like, it's a pretty short amount of time if I want to just think about a few of my sins and take them before my God on, this, on a morning time and say, here, God, oh, forgive me for this, forgive me for this, forgive me for this, and we're done. Let's move on to how you can bless me. Like, it doesn't take me that long. I don't know what your experience is like. Maybe some of you guys sit apart an hour or two because you're just not as good. I'm joking. But that's maybe where our vision or our understanding or the box that we have for sin exists. But Ezra and in fact most of Scripture seem to tell us that there is way more than just me and my sin when we talk about sin. And I think we need to consider that. Most of Scripture talks about us and our sin as a people. Could it include our thoughts, our treatment of other people? Like our, what does that look like? Like how bizarre is that, that I might think that, that later on today, sorry, I'm going to pick on you, Sandy, because you're in the, well, the third front row. Oh, Audie, you're even closer. So, sorry, I'll let you go, Sandy. Never sit up here. My good friend, Audie, who we meet together with regularly, so I, I feel okay doing this. But what does it look like for me to think that Audie is going to go out later on today and sin? And that's going to affect my life. How? Why? Is that possible? Are there things that we do corporately, even though that we are individuals out there, but uh, speak to our corporateness? For example, what about our treatment of the poor and the homeless? Is it apathy? Is it superiority? Is it just a general callousness? Because you see the guy in the corner at the intersection day after day after day, like good grief, how many loonies or toonies or bottles of water can you really give this guy? And so you start to ignore? Is it our treatment or our language and how we interact with each other? Oh, you think that? Oh, you believe that? Oh, you made that choice? I would, ah, that's just bizarre. Like, why would you do that? What about our actions or our inactions in some of the bigger global issues, climate control, creation care? Like, does how I 
do my recycling or not really matter to you, Larry? Like, who cares? Does it matter to the next person down the street? Does it matter to anybody in Papua New Guinea whether or not I put my recycling in the bin or not? What about our racist thoughts and dialogue? And I know there's no racist people here, including myself. Malarkey. We're very subtle with it. I'm just saying it as it is about those people. Like, no offense, but those people or certain people. Or what about when it's just not my issue? Like, really, the whole residential school thing? I mean, my people were in South America when all that was happening. What do I have to do with any of that? Or what about when we sacrifice love on one side for truth on the other side and how we treat people? Or vice versa? Perhaps in the LGBTQ plus community where there's a whole lot of truth coming from the church and there's a whole little lot of love. You don't have to go very far in that community to know that the belief is the church hates us. God hates us. And it's interesting. When you read the Gospels, Jesus never, ever compromises love or truth in any way, shape, or form. He holds them up in perfect unity every time he meets and interacts with a person. And you can say, well, that's Jesus. He's perfect. We're called to be like him. How do we treat people? Can we treat them with perfect love and truth at the same time? What does that look like? Anything pinging on your corporate sin radar yet? What about what John Howe reminded us of again, going back to him? Our pursuit of the great Canadian middle class dream. Is God calling every single one of us to that? He may be calling you to that. But is that something we need to wrestle with? Do we re- need to wrestle with the fact that our, our globe and the economy of the world can only produce so many goods? And if there's only so many goods, that means only so much can be consumed? And because we happen to be... I mean, it's not my fault I was born in the West. My parents immigrated from South America and I was born here. So uh, they were in a third world country, but I, I'm in the first world. It's not my fault. But do I need to wrestle with the fact that there's only so many goods that can be consumed in the world? And for us to live the lifestyle that we want to live here in North America, in the West, to be able to consume the amount of goods we consume and plan to consume and will continue to consume, that we actually need poverty in the rest of the world? Have you thought of that? You and I have to have third world countries to be a first world country. Because we cannot produce enough goods for everybody in the world to live in first world quality standards, according to anthropologists and economists. 
What does that mean for us as God's people in a first world country? What does that mean when we say things, I have the right to live my life the way I'm living it? Friends, I'm just priming the pump. I'm trying to get you thinking. I'm not condemning us. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. The potential list can go on and on and on. And some of these issues may not be issues for us at Jericho at all. But we are fooling ourselves if we think that there's no aspect of corporate sin affecting us as God's people here at Jericho Ridge. We are fooling ourselves. The deeper sin of the Israelites in Ezra's story is not that they intermarried, although that was a sin. God had decreed that a law. But it was this. It was that they put themselves in a position where they could no longer be image bearers, image reflectors, attractional image carriers of a holy God. The story of the Bible is that God uses people to do His work, reflect who He is, and invite others into the kingdom. As we come closer and closer to God, we increasingly shine His heart, His blessing into the world. And He calls us to do that individually, but He calls us to do that as His people as well. And when I fail to do that in my life and how I treat with people, treat other people, and how I interact with other people, and how I interact with the systems of the world, then that affects you because you and I are part of the people of God together. And how the world world views God is actually a reflection on us. How the world views God is a reflection on us. How your neighbor, how the indigenous community, how the downtown east side, how the homeless person on the corner of 264th, how the two LGBTQ plus community how the oppressed in the third world nations, they see God through us first and foremost. Very few of them are walking around with a Bible in their hands wondering who this God is. They look at us and when they hear that we are followers, that we are Christians, that we are people of God, that's their impression of who God is rightly or wrongly. But instead of owning this, we couch it in talking about the brokenness out there. And the bad decisions that people have made out there. And the sin that's out there, never here. Because we're godlier. We're somehow favored. And so we convince ourselves that as God's people that we don't have anything corporately to lament and confess and to repent of. We convince ourselves that sin is actually this narrow, individualistic category in my spirituality. It's nothing to do with each other. Take care of it in your own little space. Ezra looked at the sin that was out there around him, and he tore his clothes, and he pulled hair from his head. Go ahead and grab some hair. Preferably your own. The person beside you doesn't want you grabbing theirs. Feel what that feels like. And he wept because he had a vision of sin and he understood what it meant to be a people of God. Sinners connected together before a holy God. Friends, are we so ingrained in our individualistic ethos that the Word of God, which is written overwhelmingly in the plural to us, is being rewritten by us in a narrow individualistic 
manner. Is our vision of sin so narrow that more often than not we find ourselves hard-pressed to think how have I sinned, let alone how we sinned? The truth and the spiritual reality is that we are sinners individually and corporately before a holy God, and not just once in a while, but regularly. And that's what Ezra understood. And that's why he recorded in, in, in this prayer the history that we are a sinful people. And so disciplines of lament and confession and repentance are meant to be actually a regular part. Forgive us as leaders in the church not doing this. They are meant to be a regular part of our liturgy, of our lifestyle, of being together. And it's not to beat us down. I know I've been emphasizing it because I'm trying to spark in our brains a category that is lying fallow or dead for who knows how long for so many of us. But this is not to beat us down. This is not so you walk out of here with a guilt trip and start recycling better. It's to allow us to enter into the cycle which culminates in what? Lament, confession, Repentance and what? Hope. It's all about the hope in the end. That's the final step. And Ezra understood that. Because God is a God of love and mercy and grace. God pursues us so that we can be restored for his glory, for being included in his mission in the world, so that we can again be attractional image bearers. He doesn't give up on us. If we're not sinners, then we don't need hope. If we're not sinners, we don't need this God to restore us with his love and his grace and his forgiveness. But it culminates in hope. 1 John 1, 1, 8, and 9. If we claim we have no sin, Jericho Ridge, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our wickedness. Wow. James chapter 4. So you know this, then humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wow. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Lament it. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Go through the cycle. Humble yourselves before the Lord and hope. He will lift you up in honor. And in chapter 5, the rest of that book, James instructs us to confess our sins one to another. Not just privately with your God. One to another. Why? Because it leads to health. It leads to spiritual health when we enter into God's grace together. When we enter into a place of grieving the sin that we have committed and we together then enter into a place of repentance and hope. We can only come as hopeful sinners seeking forgiveness from a holy God. And when we do, there is hope. And Ezra modeled for us what it looks like to live that life together in that rhythm. And it's not just an individualistic truth. 
Yes, I want it to be true for you as an individual. Yes, I want you to process on a regular, consistent basis your, the sin in your life with your God and go through this process. But we need and we want to do this corporately. And I think one of the best places, one of the best settings that we've been given in Scripture to do this is when we take communion together where we're reminded of our sin and our need for Jesus' death and resurrection. We're reminded of our need for hope so that we can be redeemed into the presence of our holy God. And I'll be honest, as I was reflecting on this, I'm guilty of this too. I think so often when we take communion, we take communion as individuals together. As individuals. Like I stand there with you and I take my communion and you just happen to be standing there with me. And if it's not you, then it would just happen to be somebody else. And it doesn't really matter who's standing beside me. There's just, because I'm just taking it as an individual. But friends, we're intended to take communion together as God's people. We're invited to a table together. And in those first scenes of Jesus sitting with his disciples, it was so much more than just, hey, guys, we're going to quickly take communion. I'm going to give you a piece of bread. I'm going to give you a cup. Just hurry up and do this, this little spiritual ritual. Like he sat and he had a meal together with them. He talked together with them. He went into hard, ugly places together with them. He knew that we needed to, a place, a safe space to come as sinners together to receive grace and hope. And so on your seat when you arrived, there was that prepackaged cup of juice and a wafer. If you need a gluten-free option, I'm going to invite you right now to head just back to the kids' check-in and grab a gluten-free. Don't feel uh, awkward or anything. Please go now and grab one. And we're going to take communion together. This is a practical pointer. Don't rip the whole thing off at once because you're going to open up. You, there's a little foil at the top, which is first bread. Then you can do the foil of juice. Otherwise, you might spill everything. I forgot mine. you've managed to get this little wafer out, if not, ask your neighbor. <laughs> Please help me. They're not the easiest things. But this is not the sole focus. It's the corporateness that we want to focus on this morning as well. So I want us to be conscious. I want you to be conscious of who's around you. They may be someone that you live in a same household with and you know them well. Maybe a complete stranger. Who's next to them as well? Who's in this room together? This is a time of us together as sinners coming to Jesus and receiving his sacrifice on our behalf as he died on the cross for us and as he rose again three days later to conquer our sin. And so I'd like us to speak as a people with our Savior. The scriptures, the book of common prayer offer us 
a liturgy, a corporate liturgy. So I'm going to ask Joel to go ahead and put up first scripture. And I invite us, there's going to be two scriptures and then a prayer, and I'm going to invite us to read that together. Listen to your own voice, and with the other ear, listen to the voices around you. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves. But if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Hebrews 4, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive His mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So Jericho, let's come together as God's people and confess our sin so that we can receive hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray this prayer together as we read it aloud. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone, by who we have loved and who we have left unloved, by the truths we have spoken and the truths we have ignored. We have not loved you, God, with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, and we are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that together we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So let's take our wafer, and before you take it, I'd like you to simply turn to someone around you. This was the body of Christ broken for us. When Jesus shared this with his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he asked us to do it in remembrance of him. So I would simply ask you to share with somebody, say something along the lines of, this is Christ's body broken for us. Christ's body broken for us. And then you can eat. And I invite you to peel back the next layer to the juice carefully. After supper, Jesus took the wine with his disciples, and he said to them, this is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So again, before you drink it, simply to say to somebody near to you, the blood of Christ shed for us. Let's drink together. As the worship team comes forward, we invite them now. And as we move into a time of response with singing,
also want to make space for us to move into a time of prayer. And so at the back, myself and Gary Stevenson and Dale Moore will be back there. And if we need more people back there, we'll ask some of the elders to join us as well. We want to give opportunity for you to enter into a time of prayer with someone else around this rhythm of lament. There may be something you've come that, that God has spoken to you this morning and you've started to well up with grief, saying, oh God, I didn't know that was in my heart. And I want to confess to somebody because your scripture says, confess your sins one to another. And I want to enter into a place of repentance and hope. And so we'll be at the back. If you're online with us or if you're ever in between services, you can always email prayer at jerichoridge.com and we would love to enter into prayer with you that way as well. So if you are able, I invite you to stand together with our worship team. We'll respond in singing and we'll have prayer opportunity at the back as well.